Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the church. Been a long time. (laughs) 
My name is Carl Drake, and I'm still a member of this church. I've gained some pandemic pounds and gray hair, but I'm still here. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wasa has served as a vital for, a voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates. And with that in mind, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? It's wonderful to see you. It's so wonderful. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed preaching to a bunch of wooden pews, but you'll do in a pinch, I suppose. So I thought this morning, rather than tell sort of a traditional story for all ages, what I would do is tell you an old story, an old Easter story from this church, if that's okay with all of you, if you all would like to hear an old story. Um, I don't know how many people were around. I know Dory. I don't know how many people are left who are members of this church in 1973. Dory, anybody else? All right. All right, great. Okay, so uh, John Robinson was minister then. And uh, John lived way out in the country. If you've ever been to the Peterson's house or the O'Fling's house out in the country, that's around where John was. That's where he lived. And he used to come in to Wausau pretty early um, just to kind of 
walk around the block, just get a sense of the church before, before service started. And so this was an Easter. John was very excited. And there's always been this tradition on Easter where the Yawkey family, and still to this day, a descendant from Cyrus Yawkey, buys all these now thousands of dollars worth of flowers. And hopefully you're going to go home with 40 bucks worth of them or whatever you can carry in your four arms. But, uh, or two arms, I mean, if you brought other people, you could have... Uh, it's been a while, forgive me. Um, and so anyways, as John was walking around the church uh, on this one Easter morning in 1973, he saw this little cat. Uh, and, and John thought, well, I'm going to pick up this little cat. And he brought it inside the church and he got ready. And then he had this wild idea. All these women and men dressed to the nines in the 70s, the women and their beautiful Easter hats and their beautiful gowns and their children in these very expensive brand new clothes. They're all in there, and then John starts the service, and then in the middle of the service, John tells a story, much like I'm doing now, and he goes, good morning, everybody. It's so nice to see you kids come on forward. And he said, this Easter, what I thought I'd do is I thought I'd see who wants, and out from his big robe, he pulled this kitten. And he said, who wants to go home with a cat today? And all the kids went, we do. And all the parents went, no, no. And anyways, as John's sort of like petting this cat and all the kids are all excited, who's going to get to go home with a brand new cat this day? John dropped the cat or the cat jumped out of John's arms. And anyways, there was $2,000 worth of flowers up on the chancel and the cat just got lost in the flower. John couldn't find the cat. The kids couldn't find the cat. And so anyways, the entire Easter service of 1973, as John was preaching, as the congregation was singing, as everybody was filing in and out, this is what you heard. So in honor of 1973, I've given the Humane Society all of your personal cell phone information and your addresses. They'll be delivering cats to every single one of your houses later today. So anyways... Happy Easter, get some cat food, a kitty litter box, and so on. With that in mind, let's sing our children's song for the kids who are here this morning and for the kids who are here in spirit and listening online. And if you'd like, please rise now in body or spirit and join in singing our opening hymn number 269 in the hymn book, Lo, the Day of Days is Here.
have a seat. If you would join me in the responsive reading for this Easter, the words are in your order of service if you'd like to follow along. These words are written by Elizabeth Tarbox, who's a minister on the East Coast for many years. And she writes, And so I say ours is a story of faith and hope and love. And keeps us at it when we otherwise might despair at the fix we are in. Whoops, I sorry. I, that brings us laughing and limping into relationships, literally. All right. I say it is the holy we need, the eternal beyond our comprehension. And I say there is a transcendent value worthy of our loyalty upon which we may set our hearts, and its divine manifestation is love. If you would, please join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I always encourage you to put both feet firmly on the ground, press them down into the floor, feel the earth supporting you below. Close your eyes if it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed. And take a breath and be thankful for that breath. And let us journey into silence with these words. Infinite spirit of life who art seen in the beauty of bud and blossom in the renewing year and in the beauty of pure desire and holy aspirations in human souls. Make us now to fill the thrill of abundant life that comes to all Earth's creatures in the spring. Let the sun of righteousness melt the frost of indifference in our hearts. Strengthen and revive the barren branches of our lives. Cause us to send out buds of confidence and blossoms of cheer. Give us to bear the benefit of service and the yield of kindly deeds. And in your own good time, ripen the harvest for the blessing of all humankind. And when the chill storm comes, strengthen us in the assurance that beyond the time of withering and decay, there await our spirits other seasons of blossoming and benefit. And other fields and gardens of infinite dominion is yet unknown, but certain as the springtime in our souls. And let us meditate in silence together now. Amen. You're welcome to rise now and join in singing hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid.
So in a lot of ways, Easter isn't really that much of a story. But in my opinion, that's sort of the power of it. As far as the world was concerned, and as far as the world is still concerned, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a big dud. Nothing changed. The day he died, and every day since, there's been violence and cheating. There's been lying, pandemics. Good has been held hostage by evil and the devil's work. Shame, doubt, pride, wrath, jealousy, scapegoating, and the like. It's as cunning and profitable as it's always been. It's also a dreadfully odd story. It starts in a graveyard. And I'm going to assume that all of us have been to a graveyard. We've been to graveyards in New England cities. Those graveyards, if you recall, they're right next, oddly enough, they're right next to a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts, or they're tucked right there in the middle of skyscrapers. And we've been to newer graveyards that are laid out along straight lines with right angles and big concrete angels. We've been to mausoleums. We've been to museums and seen Egyptian mummies. And we've carried the casket of loved ones. And we've visited graves and we've placed flowers on them and we've talked to the dead. Don't pretend like you haven't done it. We've prayed at people's graves. We've had lunch at people's graves. And we've searched for and stepped over people's graves. But none of us have ever seen the dead rise up out of one of them. From a, from a religious perspective, Christianity is basically the only religious tradition that believes in bodily resurrection. Lots of other religions believe that our spirits, or something like our spirits, live on. There's reincarnation, and I'll summarize it poorly, but nevertheless, reincarnation says the essence of us goes from one body to another, or maybe the essence of you will go from your body into an animal if you have wasted your life being a jerk. Just bear that in mind. But no religion up till Christianity dared to talk about bodily resurrection until, as I just said, Christianity. Nobody did it because it's weird. That's unbelievable. It's impossible, we say. But it happened, those eyewitnesses tell us. They can't explain it. They just say it happened. They say it happened like those friends of ours who insist that they have seen ghosts. How many of you have that friend? Nobody's raising their hand, but you all have that friend. Or how about that other friend who swears whenever they hold a stone, they feel special energy from a stone? I know in a UU church, there are a lot of those people in here, so I'm not even going to ask. Those eyewitnesses at the empty tomb, they do what all of us would do if we went to a grave or we opened up a casket to discover that nothing was inside. What would you do? You would freak the hell out is what you would do. You would absolutely freak out. And people can draw their own conclusions about the resurrection, but what it tells me, at least in part, is this. Bodies matter. Black bodies matter. Asian bodies matter. In your body, it matters. And yes, we have memories of the dead that we can carry with us, and that is a very, very special thing. But after a year or more of social distancing, a year in which many of us, myself included, haven't touched our parents. We haven't touched our grandchildren. We haven't touched our neighbors. We haven't shaken anyone's hand. We haven't wrestled with our nieces and nephews. We haven't visited dying friends in the hospital. If by this Easter you haven't figured out just how much bodies matter, you're a fool. And I'm going to bet that if given the choice of just a memory or a chance to hug and hold the hands and bodies of the people who have departed from you in this life, if you were given that chance and it was a real opportunity to have just a memory or for just one more chance to be next to that person's body, I don't know about you, but I can say for certain that I would choose the hands and the hugs 100 times out of 100. Which brings me back to the point. Bodies matter. It's been said that when it comes to the Easter story, if you come away asking yourself what changed, 
you're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking yourself is not what changed. The question you should ask yourself is who changed? And who were those first people to change? Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome. And those ladies were at the tomb to mourn the death of their beloved son, their friend, and their teacher. And they were communing with the dead, like all of us have done or all of us will do at some point in our lives. But these three ladies were in for a shock when they discovered the body of their son and friend was gone. And they did the exact same thing that we would do as we've already established. They freaked out. They ran away and they started looking for their friends who they probably assumed they would think were drunk or sleep deprived once they told them that they found an empty tomb. Once they told them that there was an angel who pointed to a wad of cloth on a bench. Just put yourself in those disciples' shoes. What would you do if your friend ran up to you and told you this story? You'd doubt it. But the apostles heard the story and it changed them. Now I want you to consider this cast of characters. I want you to consider these apostles because I expect, or at least I hope, that you're going to find at least a part of yourself in these apostle characters. So they were brave and they were daring, at least in part. But they were also doubtful and lazy. They could be cowardly. They were the kind of people who jumped on the bandwagon whenever the home team was winning, but they forgot the sport even existed when the record dropped below 500. I don't know what that's like. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan, but you Brewers fans know what this is like to have a team consistently below 500. Anyways, that's what the disciples were like. They were fair-weather friends, and they were lukewarm religious practitioners. They were the kind of people who napped when they should have been praying, they doubted when they should have trusted, they kept quiet when they should have spoken up, and they spoke up when they should have shut up. And maybe you know someone like this. And if you don't, just turn and look at your neighbor this morning, and then you'll learn and you'll meet someone just like this. But oddly enough, this ragtag group of people who you and I would ignore if we passed them in the grocery store, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, thieves, politicians, what would happen to these people? They would come to be known the entire world over. In fact, their names, they would become our names. Their names would become the names of our children and our children's children. Peter, Simon, Mary, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Salome. That the world knows the names of this group of nobodies but hasn't the foggiest idea when it comes to the names of pretty much every single Roman governor, general, and senator is proof that light really does cast out the dark. It proves to me that the moral arc of the universe indeed bends toward justice. The point of this is that God gets the message through with people like this so that people like us might see that we, we can change too. That we might consider the fact that something good can happen to us. That in fact we can be surprised by goodness. As Paul Tillich wrote, and I quote, nothing, nothing is more surprising than the rise of the new in ourselves. And who here and who listening online doesn't want something good and new to rise up in them? That's one of Easter's messages. New, surprising things can happen even when we don't expect it. But Easter means a lot of things. So, for instance, when I was a boy, if you want to know what Easter meant to me as just a little guy, Easter meant candy for breakfast. It meant afternoon stomach aches. It meant egg hunts and a crisp new outfit each and every Easter morning for church. And at church, I would sit there with my gurgling stomach, and my gurgling stomach and me, we would suffer through the service as I stared out the windows, dreaming of all of the eggs that I would find that would be filled with coins and candy and dollar bills once the preacher finally shut up and set us free. Easter also meant spring. It meant gardens and getting to go fishing with my grandpa. It meant school was almost out. It meant the city swimming pool was about to be open. And in some ways, this is still what Easter means to me. 
But as I've gotten older, Easter has done something different. Easter now dares me to believe that God is with us, that there is a power amongst us that can inspire and unsettle us in ways we didn't even know we needed. I'm going to quote an old philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. This is what he wrote. We run heedlessly into the abyss. We run heedlessly into the abyss, putting something in front of us to stop our seeing. And this tendency we have, he said, is the greatest of our mistakes. He thinks it's the greatest of our mistakes for it prevents us from thinking about ourselves and this tendency to just run blindly at things leads us eventually into destruction. It's like we can't help sometimes but barrel along, narrowly focusing on the image we want to project. We want to project always being seen as right or whatever else it is that our ego has become fixated on. And why do we do this? Why do we run through life with eyes closed? We know we do this because we read and hear stories about this from our friends and family. Books are written about this. The movies we watch are about this. And some of us, our lives are even like this. They're like this because we don't deal with the emptiness in our marriage, so we fill it instead with rage. And rather than repair what's broken, we decide to detour into addiction. And rather than accept responsibility for our feelings, our actions, our inaction, we scapegoat. We project our fear and anxiety onto others rather than gaze deeply into our own hurt and pain. Serene Jones is a theologian, and she's currently the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And she says this. She says that our injuries, our grief, and our pain can actually become things we wrap around us like a blanket. We wear them, and over time, they give us almost like a false sense of security, she says. And when this happens, Jones warns us, we don't deal with and let go of our injuries and pain, and then what ultimately happens is we never fully experience the world because all we're focused on is our own injury and our pain. And that means we're not fully alive. But the question she asks rhetorically then is, how do we let go of hate and fear? I'm going to quote Jesus. He said to his disciples, in the world ye shall have tribulation. It's as true today as it was then. Crap happens. Get used to it, is what it might say today. All of us are slowly emerging from our own pandemic tombs. And we're emerging into a world that is filled to the brim with tribulation. The world is filled to the brim with gun violence, with anti-Asian and anti-black racism. There's a genocide in China and yet another attack on the Capitol Police. The questions I see popping up in the newspapers are how do we let go of our injuries and our pain and our grief so we can truly experience life? And how do we live in a world so desperate for healing? These are the very same questions at the heart of Easter. Consider that this story has survived thousands, literally thousands of years of scandal and corruption, and it endures because in the face of fear, it stares us down and it says, hope. It's a story that looks fear in the face and it says, not today. And I will admit that fear is hard in the sense that it keeps us awake at night. It robs us of our peace and comfort and it does this to us so easily. Fear is easy in the sense that we don't even have to do anything to be afraid. Fear is easy. What's hard is hope when fear is near. When it's way past curfew and your kid won't answer the phone, fear comes easy. It's hope that's hard to find. Easter tells us to do something harder than fear. It tells us to hope. As the second of the 12 steps tells us, we have to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore. If you believe that the world can be better, that means you must believe in the goodness of others that there's a power greater than your own that restores, that our lives are wrapped up with the lives of others, 
And because of that, the decision that's ours to make is whether or not we want to be up for the task. As Serene Joan asks, will we or won't we be midwives to the world we want to be born? Her question drives home the point that there is a part of the work that is ours to do, but everyone knows there's only so much we can control. There's only so much you can do. And that's where faith has to come in. And that leads me right back to the empty tomb. Everyone outside that tomb was certain that it'd be filled with death. Both of the Marys and Salome, that Roman soldier who stood up all night guarding that grave from robbers. They went inside and the tomb was empty. At the heart of the faith, our spiritual ancestors passed down to us is absence. It's absence because they didn't know all the answers, and we don't have all the answers either. You can go through life and you can ignore the absence and the despair. You can go through life thinking that science will fill the void, or politics, or any one of the countless things people do to fill the voids in their lives, but they never have and they never will do the job completely. They don't do the job because there are some things in life that can't be fixed with a new water well. There are some things in life that can't be fixed with a new policy or a new president. Because sometimes the healing we need is a spiritual healing. What our ancestors dare us to do is to peer into that empty tomb and consider the possibility that the world isn't as simple as we think it is. For all its laws and patterns and historical repeats, this world has surprises. The people in this world can surprise us. We can surprise us. The absence isn't a void, it's a promise. It's an ever-present offer to begin again. What Easter's really about is good news. It's about second chances. Good news in a world filled with bad news. And the good news of Easter is this. Be not afraid. If you go through life wrapped up in fear and injuries and grief, you will never really live. Life begins for Easter people when we take hold of what's been given to us and we run with it. Many people fail to live because they're waiting for all that troubles them to die. They're waiting for all that annoys them to just vanish. But if you wait for everything you're scared of to magically disappear, you might as well admit that you are waiting for the grave. And here's another bit of Easter good news. It's a question. What's the difference between you and every person's grave that you've been to? You're not in a grave. You're alive. For how much longer? Nobody knows. So my advice to you on this Easter is get out there and live and be not afraid and be a midwife to the world you want to be born. The Easter story starts with the question, who changed? So will you change? Or will you just go through life running heedlessly into the abyss? Life begins when you figure out how you want to use your time when you stop being afraid of what you know and what you don't know, and you live. Amen. Let's prepare to receive the offering. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope for we are now the keepers of the dream. Is there no offering? Is there no offering? There's just a a basket out in the atrium. Apparently there's no formal offering. There's just a basket out in the atrium for you to leave your gifts. So, will you join me in the doxology?
Please join me in singing hymn number 61. I close out this service with the benediction. Don't forget, take as many plants as you can get with your forearms on your way out today. And also, if you think of someone on your way home that you think might like to color their house with some Easter color, be sure to grab a plant for your neighbor or for a friend of yours. And with that, let us close out this service. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat if you'd like, relax and enjoy the postlude, and if you want to mingle and chat in the atrium, I encourage you to do so.